Well, good morning. My name is Rick, and I get to serve with uh, Elizabeth's husband, who was referenced in our ministry time this morning. I don't know about you, yesterday, in the midst of all that rain, it made me think of wanting to plan a road trip out of here to places that were more sunny. And I've met a couple of people who've been in warmer places over the past few days and weeks that made me think of that I want to go there too. And I won't think of who in specific I, I want to be jealous of. How many of you guys like road trips? Well, there's two kinds that I've been on. And I kind of get to, want to get a, a vote on which is our more popular. You have the, the road trip journey that is about the journey. It's about enjoying things along the way. There may be a rendezvous point at the end where you circle back, but you want to enjoy things along the way and take in what comes in. How many of you say, I like the progressive road trip of enjoying things? Let's show of hands. Okay. How many of you want to get there? The destination is where I want to go. Okay. About half and half. I recall a few years ago, my first job out of college in 1994, I was moving from San Francisco to Rochester, New York. And uh, so I loaded up my Jeep Cherokee with my dad and all my earthly belongings for this trip across the country, my first time ever. And 20 years ago, some of you remember, there was this thing called MapQuest that you had to actually go on the Internet to look at to find directions for things. They had not been on a phone yet. And so I put my address of where I lived, and I thought, I wonder if this will work across the country. I put the apartment that I'd be moving to, and I press Go. And I was expecting pages and pages of, of notes. And it looked at my page and it said, go one mile to 101 Freeway in San Francisco. Head north 10 miles. Turn east at the Bay Bridge Freeway, Bay Bridge, for 2,735 miles. <laughs> Exit 15A in Henrietta, New York. South on Rush Road, left on Dalton. I was there. Nine directions to go 2,800 miles. But we were on a mission because I had five days to get there to get a new job. And so for four days, my dad and I solved all of our problems and created some new ones along the way. We stopped only to eat, to sleep, to, to fuel up, and to pull across the, the road to take a picture in every state that we'd been there to prove that I'd been in some of these states. And I recall some of the pictures I took. You couldn't tell if Nebraska was a different country or it was just flat. It just had no markers but we made it about 700 miles per day. Our goal was to get there. And we arrived with this four-wheel drive and a person who didn't know how to drive in the 15 inches of snow that were on the ground that greeted me when I moved there. I was a rookie. Well, this morning we're going to continue the series in Luke chapter 9. Uh, the title is Included Journey. And we are looking in chapter 9 as a pivotal time in Jesus' life and ministry where he transitions from a season of teaching about who God is, teaching what the kingdom of God is like. He's demonstrating that by healing all kinds of people with diseases and sicknesses, people that he encounters that are demoniacs or have demon possession where he speaks a word and they're delivered. He calms the storm to show that he is a God who has dominion over creation and how he can provide miracle out of five loaves and two fish and feed multitudes of people. So that becomes part of the, the backdrop of a turning point. In chapter 9, there's three times he talks about his mission. He locks in his GPS and says, and now I'm going to the cross. And so this morning we're going to read in Luke 9, 51 to 56. 
And you can read in your devices, on your Bibles, or on the screen above this morning. It says this, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading to Jerusalem. When disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and he went to another village. The big idea is that Jesus is focused on seeking and saving, not judging and punishing lost people. There's one thing I want you to get today is that. Jesus, his mission is about seeking and saving lost people, not judging, condemning, or destroying people. Contrary to what some of us may feel at times, we deserve it. It was this past week that my, uh, we're putting our kids to bed, and we say goodnight to them and kind of ask them a question. And our son was in the bottom bunk, and we asked him, my wife asked him, how his day was? And he says, I'm a bad boy. And we said, What happened? And he began to unfold that he had done something wrong in that day. And because of one thing wrong, he felt that he was unworthy. He was bad altogether. My wife explained to know you are loved. And if you did something wrong, just ask God for forgiveness. And it's over. You can receive grace and mercy. You are not labeled. You can't self-label yourself as being bad when you're loved by God. You made a mistake, you can ask forgiveness or apologize to someone and then walk away from that condemnation, that label, I am bad, I am no good. In Luke 19, we hear of Jesus' mission. He says, Luke writes of Jesus, and he says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He came to seek out and save those who are lost. So a few observations from the passage this morning. First is as Jesus is focused on his mission. His destination sets the course of his journey. What's interesting when I first read it is that he understood that heaven was his home. He's on his way to heaven, but there's a painful road ahead of him into going to Jerusalem. Three times in chapter 9, it talks about this mission of going to heaven, of going to the cross. And Jesus knew the consequences of that very, very well. He knew Jerusalem meant that he had a disciple who would be a traitor and sell him out. Others would find persecution and they would abandon him. Yet he was resolute to saying, I'm going to do this. Another translation said he set his face, wouldn't be moved. Jerusalem meant also that he would be tried with trumped up charges of claiming to be king of the Jews by these religious Jews before a civil Roman court and be condemned to die for claiming to be God. You would then be whipped 39 times just short of death, have a crown of thorns put on his head and suffer a lonely death, a painful death, where even his father, the Bible says, turned his back on him when he saw the sin that he carried upon him. And then he rose again to go to heaven. Jesus knew that this mission was important. And he locked his GPS on the fact that I got to go to Jerusalem. I don't prefer this as we read in 
Garden of Gethsemane. He says, God, if this cup can pass, I'd be okay with that, but not my will, but yours. And we, we know that it was God's will for him to do that. Only he could pay for our sin. What his mission was not about was destroying people and punishing them, judging them. The second observation is that the Samaritans opposed Jesus and his mission. There's a map I want to show you of Israel, of where Jesus came from as he's traveling. Up on top, you see the Sea of Galilee between the orange and the pink section, and that's where Jesus fed the 5,000. A lot of ministry happened on the Sea of Galilee. But as that season ended and he began to walk towards Jerusalem, he needed to travel south to the area of Judea, to Jerusalem. And the path to get there was through Samaria. And Samaria was a very contentious place. They opposed Jews, and Jews opposed them. And he had to go to that area. And it was kind of going through like the hood, going to an area that you just don't go through that area, but you have to. The Samaritans opposed Jesus, and there was tension between the two groups of people. Culturally, Samaritans were considered half-breeds because they did not keep pure to their faith in the one God. They worshipped God, and so did the Jews. But they intermarried with other people groups, and therefore they were seen as half-breeds, like half-sisters or sisters or cast-offs in the eyes of Jews who said, we've kept ourselves pure before God. We've done it right. And there was a political tension because the Samaritans had aligned themselves with the Roman government, trying to earn favor, being good standing with the powerful rulers. The people of Israel said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to stay true to, to God, and we're not going to kiss up and try to earn favors. And life was hard for them. In fact, they had two places of worship and religious tension. The Jews had Jerusalem. They saw it was a holy city. The Samaritans were part of the northern kingdom. They established Mount Gerizim in the middle of that, that map as the holy place where they would worship. Both worshipped or believed in the five books of the Mosaic Law, the Pentateuch. The Jews believed in reading the prophets and the wisdom literature as well. Samaritans said, Mount Gerizim is a holy place. The Jews said, Jerusalem. And the Jews at one time earlier had gotten so frustrated that they went and they destroyed the temple that Samaritans used to worship. It was bad blood. And Jesus with his entourage is going to Jerusalem to worship where the Jews go, and they have to pass through Samaria. That's the context of this group of people. They don't really like each other. They both think they're doing it right. And rather than having something that's radically different, they're close enough in proximity. They worship one God, but say, it's over here. No, it's over here. You guys are legitimate. You are illegitimate. You destroyed a temple because you thought it was wrong, and we are hateful to you. Then in that, Jesus enters the town, and he sends disciples ahead and said, set up a place for us. Of course, it doesn't go well, because they met with rejection. The Samaritans say, if you're not worshiping in Mount Gerizim, you just keep on going. Don't stop here. You're not welcome here. Which was uncommon in the Middle Eastern culture of hospitality. When strangers came to your door, you would generally open your door and let them stay the night. But when they found that Jesus was heading to Jerusalem, they said, you just keep on going. You're not welcome here. You go to your own place of worship. You come into our town, you worship our God here. Which wasn't going to happen. 
So in that context, they're there. The Samaritans oppose Jesus. And thirdly, you have overzealous followers get distracted from the mission. These overzealous disciples. Interesting that these two guys are called the sons of thunder, James and John. How would you like to name that for your boys? Sons of thunder, come over here. Probably not the best positive nickname. Either they were loud and boisterous. They caused a ruckus when they came through. Opinionated. And as I was looking at this, I was like, these guys, man, are knuckleheads for what they try to do. But there's some things I noticed about them that were actually admirable. One is they believe God's power to do miraculous things. They said, God, we've been, Jesus, we've been walking you. You can do some amazing things. And we want to defend your honor because they did not welcome us. That's a, that's a shameful thing. They shamed us by not allowing us to stay in their village. We're going to defend your honor, Jesus, because we're your disciples. In the midst of that zeal, they, they knew enough to submit to Jesus. What do you think? Here's our idea. If you think it's a good idea, we'll call down fire from heaven. But we're, we're totally cool with what you think. So they submitted, they have zeal, they want to honor God, like we're going to stand up for you and fight against these people who are irreligious, irresponsible, illegitimate, not worshiping the right God, we're going to show them the right way. We know God, you're able. And they were not without precedent because they were probably good Jewish boys who learned the Old Testament because in 1 Kings 18, there's a story of Elijah, the prophet, who encountered these prophets of Baal, these people who had opposed the God of Israel. And it's a standoff. It's a great story for three of your kids. 400 prophets of, of Baal against Elijah who worships God. At one point, they have these altars, and Elijah goes, enough. God, send them fire and strike them. So James and John, he's like, can we duplicate that? We've, seen, we've heard about this before. This would be the appropriate time to send fire from peop- on, on people. Those who rejected us. Because we're with him. They're hotheads. And what was the reason? Because of inhospitality. Not being hospitable. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes them. He says, you don't even know my heart. I came to seek and save the lost. And you want me to destroy a whole village? Because they were mean to you? I don't care what you think of their politics or their culture or their religion or their practices. I came to seek and save the lost. Knock it off. You don't know my heart. I didn't come to judge and destroy. I came to set people free. And if they don't resect us here, we'll go on the next village. And you see the disciples like, whoa, we thought we were doing the right thing. We thought we were standing up for, for you and for the, the things we've learned. Jesus, no, you don't understand. I didn't come to judge, destroy, destroy children and women because they didn't accept me here. You don't understand God's heart. My heart is for people. Makes me ask the question, what triggers your agenda or or righteous anger. 
I have to ask myself that question. My political views, people who differ from me, the things I hold true, other nations that don't act righteously, people close to me that either work or otherwise that challenge me in my faith and mock me. I've had those thoughts. Maybe you have. Of, God, get them. Get them. Get them a little. Show them who's, whose side I'm on. I'm on your side. He says, I'm not on your side if that's your heart. My heart is for people who are lost and broken and don't know me yet. I need to correct your thinking on the mission. The mission is not to be at the might and the right. The mission is not turn or you'll burn. The mission is go and seek people who are lost. They don't even know, know me yet. And you can represent me as well. I remember I had a, a manager at work at a bank I worked at who had no interest in looking at truth of Scripture. He knew I was a believer. And he would ask questions just to get me going. And it would frustrate me. I, I almost dreaded going to work at times when I was in college. And he'd ask questions about the meaning of life and ask questions that were beyond what I had studied and things that he didn't really care about, but he came a thorn in my side. And I actually started thinking, God, would you... Would you help the guy out here? Do something. And the more I start praying for him, I realize I can't have a heart like that because God loves this person. He's lost like I once was. I'm no different other than I found Christ or he found me first. And though he was cantankerous and ornery and frustrated me, I had to say, God, help him. I want to be patient. Especially when you don't see things change. You're like, God, move quickly. Fourthly, Jesus' mission, Jesus mission requires short-term patience for long-term success. Short-term in sense of our life on earth compared to eternity. Jesus says, be patient. I got this thing worked out. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter puts it so well when he says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understood slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. <clears throat> you ever think that, ever pray and feel like God's slow? He's not answering, moving quickly enough? Peter totally gets it. He said, Not the kind of slowness that you think of. I'm talking about a slowness that is deliberate to give time, not rushing to get to the end and make us be part of the few people that are, are sacred. Disciples were not pleased because these were perceived as enemies, Samaritans. They were never, ever to come to agreement. And James and John didn't really have time for enemies of so Jesus. Want to move on to who those responded quickly, or were probably maybe heard of his fame and would would be more disposed to believe and want to pursue him, but parents didn't. It reminds me of a story of Abraham Lincoln that I read. <clears throat> so during the Civil War, Lincoln had occasion and official reception to refer to Southerners as erring human beings rather than as enemies 
worthy to be exterminated. In the crowd was an elderly woman, a fiery patriot who rebuked him for speaking kindly of his enemies when he ought to be thinking of destroying them in the south. He responded by saying, Why, madam? Do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? He says, When I reach out and I bring them close to me, I don't destroy them as if they don't exist anymore. They are no longer my enemies. When I bring them close, and this person obviously had a, a view of the south that was very strong, and she said, they are your enemies. Destroy them. Because no, they're a little off. They're erring human beings. But if I bring them close to me as friends or bring them close to us, we'll become friends. I think that's a perfect picture of what Jesus says in this story. All those enemies out there, I'm going to make a way by going to Jerusalem, dying and rising again, so they'll have access to become my friends, my sons and my daughters. And that is good news. Those who are far off now become close. They have access. And the people who have the hardest time with that were his disciples. No, we don't want them to be close. We don't want others to have access. We want to have the only one, the only gateway. We're the people of Israel. Those in the story that you see in Acts, the second book that Luke writes... Where the Great Commission comes to disciples and he says, and you will be my witnesses. He says, you know the part where it says from Jerusalem to Judea to this great place called Samaria. And from there you go to the ends of the earth. Yeah, Samaria. Remember that place that rejected me? I want someone to go there. I'm going to go right back to those people who didn't show us hospitality because I think something is there. I think that they might be open to us. In Acts chapter 8, verse 5, great story. I love this account. It says, Philip went to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. And when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they paid all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. I'm sure Jesus said, and you want to destroy James and John? You want to reduce to ashes? In a few little while, I'm going to send someone back here and they're going to turn to me and respond in great joy. will fill the city that you want to destroy. Oh, have patience. I'm not done with these people. In fact, it's interesting the trickles that come out of that Jesus tells a story of the woman at the well who's a Samaritan. Disciples find him there and he's, why are you talking to this woman? She's promiscuous. She's from that Samaritan group. He says, no, I find something in her. She was open to, to me. She responded. She went back to her city and became the first evangelist and they all came out to experience who God was. The disciples were not happy about that. You find ten lepers getting healed. And the one that comes back is a Samaritan. This God-forsaken person from this tribe that we don't agree with. The most grateful person to come back and say, Thank you, Jesus, for healing me. Or the story of the Good Samaritan. Problem of a person on the side of the road. And there's three religious people. <clears throat> the hero stories of the Samaritan has compassion. Probably mess with these disciples. Like, what, them? Why do you make them to be the good people? 
He says, I see something in them. I saw something in the Roman centurion who came and had more faith than they all put together. He came to seek and save the lost, not judge them. The mission requires short-term patience for long-term success. On a trip to China it took several years ago, I got to, had a wonderful group of people I traveled with and got to know their stories. And one woman who's from Toronto named Brenda, she told me a story about how she came to faith later in life. She didn't grow up in a faith-filled home. And she had been praying for her father, who was a cantankerous longshoreman, worked at a port, a hard man who had hurt many people. Life was hard for him and bitter. And she kept his distance but loved him and prayed for him and saw no changes. And after I moved out of the area, moved back to Los Angeles, I uh, kept in contact with her periodically. And one day she called me. She said, Rick, you'll never guess what. My father received Christ this past weekend. Totally surprised us. I prayed for 44 years. And I gave up on him. I think there's no hope for him. He's so hard, so mean. He's hurt us as a family. But Jesus didn't give up on him. Jesus was patient with him. There's times I wish, God, if he's not in turn, get him. He's causing so much damage to people around him. She goes, but it's great news. I, there's times I gave up in the 44 years. It's time like, God, are you even hearing me? I mean, I understand that you're slow at times. But 44 years, I don't know if I would pray that long. I have hope that God can reach someone. I probably have more faith in someone to keep their hard heart than God's ability to soften them and cause them to respond. 44 years, someone in her own family that cared for her was hurt. She was like, I can wipe that away because Jesus didn't give up on him. 44 years later, who are you praying for? Who do you have patience for or not have patience for? That God says, don't judge. Don't write that off. There's hope yet that can come to the heart of that person. That language group that Jesus overcome. That cultural group. That religious group. Political group. Whatever it is. Jesus says, you need to lay down your agenda for my mission. Because my mission trumps all geopolitical, local politics, financial things. My mission is to seek and save the lost. And I want you to join in with me. So the petty things, James and John, that you think about these people, lay it down. I've got something bigger for you to shoot for that will wreck your world. Because the closer you get to me, the closer you know my heart. And the closer you know my heart, you realize my heart is for people who are lost. So get on board. Shortly after the Great Commission comes, and disciple, because of persecution, they scatter everywhere and says the gospel spread all over. There was no place the gospel had not spread to. Talking about the far reaches of the world. It was a few years later after that China trip that I went back and joined some missionaries who were praying and wanted to work in Tibet. And I've always wanted to go to the farthest places, the most far-reaching places, the most interesting cultures. And so we traveled to various places where this missionary thought that God might call him to do some work in this Tibetan Buddhist nation. And I had some conversations at some of the monasteries that we had been to. They're quite philosophical. I felt like they were a little bit combative, both had agendas, and I didn't probably didn't approach it right. And they were kind of fruitless, and I thought, Tibetan Buddhists are hard. 
It's a hard nut to crack. I've studied a little bit about it, but I don't know the right way to present the gospel. And without wisdom, without God helping, I don't know. So we just joined with our missionary friend. We prayed where we went and we worshipped and saw some of the places that we went. And some of them were quite high in altitude. It was hard to breathe, 14,000, 15,000 feet from these monasteries. It was the last day that we were there before we leave the next morning. And on the way down, uh, the guide that we had looked at me and said, you know, I've not seen many groups like yours. I said, oh, what do you mean? He says, your, your group sings a lot, and they're quite happy. I said, hmm, that's, maybe another group came that, like ours that was a worship-filled team. So I went forward, and I began to talk with him. He was in his mid-20s, and again, to share my testimony, a little bit of the gospel. And it felt like I butchered it. It didn't, the language barrier was very difficult to explain. English was probably his third language after Tibetan and Chinese. So it was kind of hard, and I speak English fairly well, but not to translate to other cultures. So I gave him this picture that I had received of, it was modeled after the wheel of life in, in reincarnation, but in it, someone had transposed on it the life of Christ from his birth, they did his life, and then his death and resurrection, and explained it in a way they would understand the wheel of life. I gave him a, a cassette tape back in the days of cassettes, of music in Tibetan. And I gave it to him. I, I said, God, forgive me for not being prepared enough to adequately share with this man. Next morning, we get to the airport. He t- leads us there. And he said, you know what that guy you talked about yesterday, Jesus? I've met him before. I said, what do you mean you met him? He said, 10 years ago, I was in northern India visiting my brother who was studying to be a monk with the Dalai Lama in north India. And we were talking about God in one night. Jesus appeared to me. I'm like, what do you mean, appeared to you? He says, Jesus appeared to me in my room. He talked to me. And he asked me about relationship with him, and I said, I'm not ready. And that was it. And he goes, last night you gave me this piece of paper that explained who he is. It's, it, this is the same guy. That was Jesus. What? I never had Jesus appear to me. Talk to me like that? And I led him to Christ. He was, he was more than ready. Anyone could have done it. Pray with him to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I said, let the Spirit of God lead you. Two days earlier, I had written off to Tibetan Buddhists hard that God could never reach him. God said, I've been waiting 10 years for this guy. You think they're hard? I may be considered slow, but I'm seeking and saving those that I want to bring to me. Don't write them off. I can reach in the farthest places in northern India, Tibet, to save anyone I choose who's open to me. Are you with me or are you against me? And I was humbled to say, God, I trust you. You've proven yourself that you can reach anyone. How? I don't see how you work behind the scenes, but I trust you nonetheless. And so this morning, I want to challenge you, encourage you. Lay down your agenda, how you view people. Say, God, I want, I want to join you in your mission. And he says, you have to walk this road to Calvary. You have to take up your cross and follow. There may be persecution, misunderstanding. People not be on your side. But join me in, in giving a message that says that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Not to judge. Not to put down and write off. Not to say, oh, you're mean and you're evil. God strike them down. Jesus never used his power to destroy. And all miracles is to encourage and build people up. 
They knew who God was. The question is, what is our response? As I go to these countries, I realize that God is not American. He loves Americans. We've seen God bless America. But he loves Tibetans. He loves Buddhists. Muslims, atheists. He wants them to be his friend, not his enemy. He says, I need you to represent me in my mission. I'm at work already. Some of the work can take time and prayer. We don't give up. So no matter what the addiction is, Paul, who was a tormentor of the church, and Apostle Paul wrote most of the New Testament, no one thought he would have gotten saved. He was arresting Christians, persecuting them, and he counters Jesus, gets on board with his mission. You know, surprise, other believers could not believe that he was now one. They never would have thought he would have made it. So we can't speculate who's qualified or able or close or far. He says, I come to seek all. You never know when you have a Samaritan story where Philip goes to his people, the disciples want to destroy him. God says, those people, they're going to come soon to me. One of you will go, going to open right up because they're ready. They worship God. They just don't understand him. They just don't know. They're hurt. They're lost. As was I. As were you. Except for God's grace. Got a few questions for you. First is Jesus came to love and seek relationship with you, not condemn you. When do you need to be reminded about it the most? There might be some of you that feel condemned by things you've done. Can't escape it. And Jesus says, I paid for that. Just confess it, repent, and turn the other way and be free. You can't change that. Second, the question is, are you carrying an offense with someone that is keeping you from praying and sharing with them? What steps can you take to forgive them? It's hard to have offense with someone that you're praying for. Maybe there's someone close to you that's hurt you that mocks you or puts you down because your faith. You're saying, forgive them so you can open the door to pray for them so you can be free and blessing can flow to them. Next question. How do you react towards those who oppose Jesus? Family members, those of different political views, cultures or religions? You have a bias or agenda that hinders you from loving certain people to Christ. We can have our beliefs of what we believe is right and how we live our lives. Before God, he says, that's not important. Seeking and saving lost people is what's important. And fourthly, who is God speaking to you about? Will you be patient for the long haul in the hope that they open their hearts? Now, we pray that God would put someone in your heart that you're like, oh, yeah. I'm the person that needs to pray for them. But also go to them and loving them, even when it's not reciprocal. So today, Jesus invites us to walk in hope. Don't stop praying. Don't stop loving. Don't pick a favorite country or, or people group because in Psalms says, Psalm says, my house will be a house of prayer for what? All nations, all people groups. All of them are his favorites. Let's bow our heads and pray.